Today on Inside Politics, Hunter Biden indicted again. Sex clubs, escorts, a rented Lamborghini. That's what prosecutors say the president's son spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on instead of paying his taxes. His lawyers and his father's campaign say this is all about politics. Plus, taking the stand. Donald Trump is preparing to testify in his civil fraud trial. Why does he keep choosing the courthouse over the campaign trail? And I'm sorry. The president of Harvard is apologizing for failing to say calls for the genocide of Jews is harassment. She's one of multiple university presidents under pressure to resign after disastrous testimony on anti-Semitism. Why is it so hard for so many to call out Jew hate? I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start today with Hunter Biden now facing nine new charges in a federal tax case that, if convicted, could put the first son in prison. The 56-page indictment filed in California alleges that he schemed to evade at least $1.4 million in federal taxes. He's already facing federal gun charges and is at the heart of a Republican-led impeachment inquiry into his father, the president. This morning, we heard from Hunter Biden himself in a pre-recorded podcast interview with the singer Moby. Hunter Biden rarely speaks publicly, and here he is talking about the attacks on him and his family. They are trying to, in, the, in, in their most uh, illegitimate way, but rational way, they're trying to destroy a presidency. And so it's not about me. In their most base way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kill me, knowing that it will be a pain greater than my father could be able to handle. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us. a very delicate issue for the president, uh, which means it's a very delicate issue for the White House and for his reelection campaign. That's exactly right, Dana. And when they're asked about this, they largely decline to comment, which has been their approach over the last few months as these cases unfold. Instead, the White House and the campaign have pointed to Hunter Biden's attorney's statement. And in that statement uh, yesterday, the attorney said if Hunter's last name was anything other than Biden, the charges in Delaware and now California would not have been brought. Now, these charges, these counts include, for example, failure to file and pay taxes, evasion of assessment, and filing a fa false fraudulent tax return. Now, President Biden, when he's approached the issue of Hunter Biden, has been quite personal in saying that his son has his love and support. He's also kept in close. We have seen Hunter at events at the White House as well as uh, in family events. But the thinking inside of the campaign is really that this issue, this of Hunter Biden and these ongoing cases, doesn't resonate with voters, that they see it for the politics that it, that it is. That's the campaign's thinking on this, and that instead voters are focused on issues like the economy. And so that is what they continue to speak to as we continue to see these cases unfold. But there is no doubt here, Dana that the president here is campaigning and in going into this presidential election and facing not only these charges for uh, against his son, but also the impeachment inquiry by Republicans 
all of this as his son tries to fight to avoid prison time for uh, these criminal cases. So it is complicated. It is delicate here within the White House and the campaign. But where they want to keep their focus is on those voter issues like the economy and declining to comment specifically as this unfolds. Okay, Priscilla, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. Let's talk about all of this with our, our panel, CNN's Gloria Borger, the AP's Sungmin Kim, Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post, and Axios's Margaret Tollev. Happy Friday. We got the green memo, obviously. <laughs> Balance there. Uh, we're going to talk about the specifics of the actual case in a moment, but let's talk about not just the politics of this, but how personal this is. Gloria, uh, you've covered Joe Biden for quite some time, right. his family for quite some time. Uh, when you heard Hunter Biden in that, they're trying to do is what they're trying to do, meaning Republicans, is kill me, knowing that it would be a pain greater than my fa my father could handle. I mean, wow. Right. I mean, he's he's effectively saying this this all will kill my father, and um, you know, I know how personally. Uh, Uh, and more so after Bo died, his, his other son. And he has been very open about Hunter's problems with drugs and everything else. And Hunter has written a book about it. But, you know, now this is a situation where the president facing a possible impeachment of his own trial for felonies. And so the political, the personal, and the legal worlds all collide. And, um, you know, I don't think you can underestimate what a tough situation this is for the president and his family. Right, right. I think um, so much of uh, President a big part of his biography. You know, he had a beautiful recounting of his grief and his sort of life with Anderson Cooper that was released earlier this week. Um, was a wonderful listen, I'll, I'll say that. And what, what the president has, it's been tricky, you know, politically for the president because this is his son. He is showing, he as a father, just how much you know, he cares for his son. Hunter is always, Hunter and his family are always with him when, you know, the, the president travels to Nantucket or elsewhere for vacation. He was asked about the impeachment proceedings with, uh, earlier this week, said they were a bunch of lies. So obviously this is very yeah. tough for him. Uh, a soundbite from Anderson's fantastic interview. We are going to take a very quick break. And I think we have some audio issues that we want to fix. Live television folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. 
Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, We are going to continue our discussion that we began before the break about the indictment of Hunter Biden on uh, tax issues and uh, the the politics of how Joe Biden himself, the Biden campaign are responding and also, of course, Hunter Biden's legal team. And, uh, you know, there really is a um, what we heard before the break, this new podcast about uh, from Hunter Biden. It was taped earlier, but him talking initially what we played was him talking about the fact that they're trying to kill me. Uh, We were talking during the break, and I think it's important to underscore it's clear what he's what he means is trying to get me back on drugs uh, to the point where I will, you know, sort of destroy myself and then that will uh, do the same to my father. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit more of what Hunter Biden said in this podcast with the musician Moby. The one way in which they would be able to certainly just undermine my dad's confidence and ability to continue to campaign and move forward, particularly after the death of my brother, to think that he could lose his son that he just had regained from an almost death through addiction. I mean, this is the kind of split screen that we're going to see next year, right? We're going to see Donald Trump in court, and we're going to also see Hunter Biden in court. And this has always been something that Biden's orbit has been cognizant of. Yes, they know that Hunter has had his problems, but their biggest worry has always been, how does the president actually deal with that? And it's not something that they necessarily go and talk to him about because it is so personal. And it's going to be those moments, you know, whether Hunter is is on trial What is the president doing that day? How is he going to temper being able to see his son under so much scrutiny, which is already happening now? And Hunter's making that very clear in this podcast. And it it, it is a way he's not wrong to say that this is something that just hurts his father so much. I I hear in between the lines of what he's saying an acknowledgement about the vulnerability or volatility of his own emotional state these last few years. And part of the reason he's saying that is because he's acknowledging I have struggled uh, uh, mentally with what this is doing to my father's um, ability to govern, uh, with the knowledge and the heaviness of kind of the agony this has brought on the family. So it is a real glimpse into uh, the more private conversations inside parts of the Biden household. And I I think to some extent his assessment is undeniable. The Republicans... um, are going after him because they see it as a way to get in President Biden's head. Yeah, yeah. Well, Period. Get, get in a way, get in his head, but also have what they call a split screen. I yeah, mean, yeah, obviously, it is, it is different, and I'm, I'm sure, obviously, you, you would agree with this, to um, 
have a trial with the president's son on, on tax issues versus four trials plus against the actual candidate himself on very different, including like Democratic existential but issues. But you see Republicans but even complaining that this indictment wasn't enough because right. it didn't involve Joe Biden. Right, exactly. Right? And, and let's get to this. We were going to talk to some legal experts, which is why we didn't start with the actual case, but let's get to it now. Uh, what we're talking about here, we are talking about six counts of failure to file and pay taxes, two counts false and fraudulent tax return, and one count of evasion of assessment. And Gloria, you have this, and then you have the uh, Hunter Biden legal team, Abby Lowell in particular, his lawyer, saying, U.S. Attorney Weiss bowed to Republican pressure to file unprecedented and unconstitutional gun charges to renege on a non-prosecution resolution now after five years of investigating with no new evidence Two years after Hunter paid his taxes in full, the U.S. attorney has piled on nine new charges, which he agreed to resolve months ago. The argument is, Why? We, we had this plea deal, it fell apart, and effectively, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, the reason that they're going after him uh, legally right now is because of political pressure right. from Republicans. Well, and nothing has actually changed in the interim. Well, the history the of this, as Abby Lowell points out, is really convoluted. I mean, there was a deal, and then it fell apart. The judge questioned it. It fell apart. And then the prosecutor said, well, make me a special counsel because I'll have broader jurisdiction. He gets to be a special counsel, and suddenly you have charges in Delaware, the gun charge, and suddenly you have the tax charges, even though, you know, Hunter Biden did repay these taxes, but it's a way also to reveal his dissolute lifestyle that he led, which he has written about, but it is an embarrassment, and, um, and it, it, you know, these are serious felony charges, which could involve jail time. Yeah, no, it could. You mentioned, Gloria, the fact that Republicans are upset about this, and they think that the whole reason, or not they think, they argue that the whole reason that this indictment has come on taxes and before it, as you mentioned, uh, in uh, the gun charges in Delaware, is to protect the president. Listen to what James Comer, who is uh, the chairman of the Oversight Committee, said. He said, Hunter Biden's corporate entities implicated by today's indictments funneled foreign cash that landed in Joe Biden's bank account. Unless U.S. Attorney Weiss investigates everyone involved in the Biden's fraud schemes and influence peddling, it will be clear President Biden's DOJ is protecting Hunter, Hunter Biden and the big guy. Yeah. He's essentially saying, like, look, DOJ, go do the work that we House Republicans are trying to do and find the connection. And we're saying that there's these connections. I mean, privately, House Republicans admit there is no there there. That's still not going to preclude them from voting to open a formal impeachment inquiry. We remember Kevin McCarthy kind of unilaterally did this. There's a number of House Republicans who say, well, if we want to actually subpoena people and that holds in the court of law, we need to have a vote. So we should expect to see that next week. But even so, a lot of these more vulnerable Republicans who do not want to be talking about impeachment of anyone because it's going to be consequential politically. I mean, a lot of people on the Hill just don't think that as much as Comer and Jordan are going to go out there and say there's a there there, the evidence is not there that Biden has done anything. Uh, yeah, I think there's two ways to look into this. And, and uh, one is, as an American citizen, as a voter trying to understand it, uh, one is to say um, if, uh, if the Justice Department uh, and the prosecutors have taken this much thorough scrutiny to go through all of Hunter Biden's dealings 
and this is what they have come up with, and there are not additional charges in the foreign influence peddling realm. Which there's no indication that there will be, right? Then they're, right. Then, uh, then it isn't there, and that can satisfy people that there's been a thorough investigation. Uh, I think the other way to look at it is they're going to use this, try to use this politically for all they can, and we've heard a lot of attorneys over the course of the last day say, this sounds like a lot of money in the tax uh, un unpaid tax cases, but in the in the big picture, um, cases with more money than this on the line get settled all the time. But if you're an average American, this is a lot of money, and the money it was spent on is kind of you know over the top. I, I just want to briefly, because I said we would uh, before the break, come back around to where we started this uh, conversation and listen to what the president told Anderson Cooper in his podcast about grief. And uh, look. Um, Bo and Hunt, they finish each other's sentences. They are the closest they could possibly be. And I think the loss of Bo was a profound, profound impact on Hunter. But when Jill and I got married, she was just totally embraced by them. Everything we've done, we've always done as a really close-knit family. And uh, the... Frank Foyer, who wrote a biography of President Biden, said specifically that he is constantly waiting for the phone to call, uh, to ring, and say that Hunter is dead. He's so concerned that uh, his son, his remaining son, uh, will fall off the wagon effectively. It's very complicated and a very important political story and personal story. Uh, everybody stay right there. We'll be right back after a break. Welcome back to Inside Politics. I want to bring in our legal experts and, of course, one of our great reporters on all things legal matters. Evan Perez is with us, as well as Elliot Williams. Thank you both for coming on. Um, Evan, I want to start with you, and I want to start with the Hunter Biden situation. You heard in last block we were talking about uh, the indictment, how right. lengthy it is, and the fact that we do hear Hunter Biden's legal team saying it's a big indictment, but like nothing has changed with regard to either the charges or the tax law that he is uh, alleged to have um, ha have broken. The only thing that's different is that the plea deal went away and that now there's a special counsel. What are you hearing from your sources? Well, look, uh, Dana, look, this is a big legal problem for Hunter Biden. The uh, Justice Department says that he could face up to 17 years in prison. It, it, no one really thinks that that's what is going to happen here, but that's what the, the general guidelines are. But, you know, the, the, the critics are right that the facts really haven't changed. They, they haven't changed since we first broke the story back in December of 2020 that this investigation was ongoing and that it was a real thing, that it was a real problem. And so one of the questions that the Justice Department, I think, is going to struggle to answer is what has taken this long to really end up at the same place they've been since then. And you can see what Republicans are saying is that you haven't really turned over every stone. And so that's going to be the part, the political part of this uh, going forward. But you do have the problem that for the, the, the president's son is going to be facing these uh, court dates. He's going to be, this is going to come back up in the headlines. And we'll see whether a jury in Los Angeles is going to buy this case that is being brought by prosecutors. Because after all, Hunter Biden paid these taxes. And they're going to make the point that most people who pay their ta who end up paying, even if they paid late and if they had these problems, don't get charged criminally. 
Elliot, talk about that from the point of view of uh, having served in DOJ and prosecuting cases. Sure. I mean, I think, and then picking up on the kinds of details uh, that are coming out that, that, that Evan pointed to, I think a challenge here uh, for prosecutors in court is going to be which of these details are actually even going to make it into court. They are salacious and... Um, I guess salacious is the word for the kinds of details you're talking about here. And there's a chance that a judge could keep some of this out because if you're establishing that an individual, number one, didn't file his taxes and number two, tried to evade his taxes, it probably isn't relevant that he was doing so in order to pay off sex workers or buy drugs or whatever else. Now, maybe prosecutors can say that you have to know why uh, where the money was going in order to establish sort of his intent to not pay his taxes. But it creates this little bit of a legal quagmire o over is this just designed to embarrass this defendant or is it relevant information? And a judge is going to have to sort out uh, every sort of every little bit and piece here. It, you know, it's a valid question. Back to what you were talking about with Evan as well. It's a valid question as to what took so long. Now, look, a prosecutor can bring a case wherever there are facts to suggest that, that that crime took place. And this is, we should note, Los Angeles as opposed to Delaware. Uh, there, I, I guess, are some factual differences between the two cases, but you know, that doesn't, that's not presented to the jury. It's not for them to decide why a case is brought when it was. So I think there are political questions surrounding it, um, but you know, this is not going to, going to end in someone going to jail for 17 years, I will say that. You might go to jail, it's not gonna be for 17 years on account of all the things we're talking about. Let's switch gears, Evan, and talk about what we are going to likely see, what we think we're going to see right. on <clears throat> Monday, and that is the former president back in a courtroom, and not just in a courtroom, but actually on the witness stand in the case uh, that he is battling that has to do with his uh, company and whether or not his company can exist in the state of New York. Right. I mean, this is the I talk about having huge legal consequences for the former president, because obviously the, 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 the idea that his company might get the, essentially dis dissolved in the state of New York and and he can't do business there is a huge thing consequentially for the for, for Donald Trump. Um, but one of the things that he's going to try to do on Monday when he appears is to try to button up this case to say, look, real estate is one of those squishy things. It's 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 uh, there's always, you know, bravado. There's always marketing. And who's to know how much things are worth until someone decides to pay for it. Right. right. And that's going to be a very, very strong case that he's going to try to make to try to wrap up that case on, on Monday. And, and Elliot, really quickly, the idea of him taking the stand, his attorney, Donald Trump's attorney, says that her advice was not to take the stand, but he wanted to. Yeah, it is almost never in a defendant's interest to take the stand, to be perfectly <laughs> candid, Dana, because of the risks that can come. Number one, you can contradict yourself. Number two, you could get even more under the judge's skin than you already are. And as is the case, as we've seen here, uh, you know, the, the Trump organization seems to have um, rankled the judge a little bit. So there is a very narrow line here. Now, look, they have already found fraud in this case. So it's kind of their last best chance. The court has found fraud. It's And it's sort of the Trump team's last best chance to sort of stop the bleeding a little bit. And perhaps putting the defendant on the stand is the way to do that. But absolutely, I would be with that t attorney 100%. It's always risky to make the defendant take the stand. Especially this defendant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back here on Monday talking about that very thing. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Up next, the president of Harvard apologizes after bipartisan backlash to her Capitol Hill testimony this week. We're going to talk about that and the strange political bedfellows all of this is creating. 
Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. I'm sorry, words matter. Harvard President Claudine Gay is apologizing for failing to say calls for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard's policies. It comes as the second gentleman is joining the growing outrage against university presidents and others who can't or won't unequivocally denounce Jew hate. Here's what Doug Emhoff said at the National Menorah Lighting last night. We've seen the presidents of some of our most elite universities literally unable to denounce calling for the genocide of Jews as anti-Semitic. That lack of moral clarity is simply unacceptable. Great reporters are back. I neglected to say that Doug Emhoff is the first Jewish, well, he's the first second gentleman, but the first Jewish person in any of those roles. Right. So it wasn't surprising to hear him talk about it. Um, But, you know, when you say there's a lack of moral clarity, that's that's tough stuff. And I think these university presidents are suffering as a result because they couldn't just say the obvious. And it seems to me that, you know, they were all talking about context. Well, as Elise Stefanik asked, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And there was no answer for that question. Yeah. So we, we did see obviously this all, and I think people very well know by now, there was a hearing earlier this week Three of the Ivy League uh, university presidents testified. They couldn't say uh, under questioning from Elise Stefanik, Republican uh, in the leadership in the House, whether or not saying genocide against Jews is uh, is allowed there. And since then, we just started by saying the Harvard president just apologized. There was a video that the Penn president put out uh, saying, yes, in fact, it is wrong and it should be against policy, but she didn't apologize. Um, The fact that Elise Stefanik is pushing this is really interesting because she doesn't have traditionally a lot of Democrats saying, you go, girl. And in this particular case, she does. Uh, Richie Torres, who uh, likes to turn a phrase very well, he (laughs) said, and he's a fellow New Yorker, even a broken clock is right twice a day. She continues to be an odious demagogue. It's <laughs> a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I think the uh, well the conversation about uh, Doug Emhoff too reminded me just how forceful the White House has been in speaking out against a lot of these anti-Semitic acts that we're seeing across the country. And I know we're la- we're broadly focused on obviously the White House's policy and handling of the war in Hamas or war against Hamas right now. But every time a lot of these incidents pop up over the country, whether it's the uh, the harassment of the Jewish deli in the Pennsylvania area, certainly after the hearing with the college presidents, the, the White House, particularly the press office, has been very, um, you know, unequivocally pointing out just that this is anti-Semitic, it is unacceptable, we support the Jewish committee. And that's been very important to this White House to point out to the public. Yeah. Good. I, I was just going to say, uh, I, I think these three uh, university presidents uh, misunderstood what that moment and that hearing was in the context that um, this was a, a political event and they were clearly trying to, to balance in their heads and then say it all at the same time 
a way to balance uh, protecting students and being against genocide with protecting academic freedoms, which is the most important aspects of university, even when it's very controversial. I will say this, um, not only are these three female presidents, Claudine Gay is also the first black president of Harvard, but they're also new in their jobs. Uh, two came into their jobs this year in 2023 and one in 2022. These are not uh, people who, uh, they have all had accomplished academic careers, political scientists, a scientist, uh, a lawyer. Uh, they do not have expertise on the hot seat in one of the uh, you're biggest being very, political... You're being very, you're being very generous, but like you don't, you have to just live on planet Earth 100%. to be able to say that and genocide, is, yes. saying genocide against anybody is 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 wrong. But, but I, I take your point. And they it's important context. I, I'm not trying to apologize for. No, the no, no. I know you're saying, not. I know you're not. You're trying to contextualize they, it. They are. That's academics. my point. Let's yeah. let's. And I appreciate that. That's important, Margaret. Let's uh, look ahead because this is not over. Uh, Elise Stefanik knows that she has uh, caught fire with this, and she has a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about Harvard again. And then she also continues to say the failure to call out and punish those demanding the genocide of Jewish people is the consequence of decades of appeasement, of appeasement, of radicalism and watering down of principle at our most hallowed institutions of higher education, which were founded as bastions of moral clarity and pursuit of truth. Um, she is a Harvard grad, and so uh, are a lot of the most um, conservative, high-profile uh, people that we're seeing, not just talk about this, but just out there, and we have them all on the screen, and it's very interesting because this is not new. This whole idea of conservatives saying higher education is too woke, this is just done through the narrow prism of anti-Semitism, which the, these university presidents are not calling out. And it, it doesn't say, it doesn't negate the fact that there certainly is anti-Semitism on the right, but it is, when you look at the political spectrum, you are seeing anti-Semitism on the far right and on the far left, and you're seeing calling out anti-Semitism, in this case, at colleges on the right and on the left. It is such strange bedfellows in, in both in both sides. Absolutely. And you know, one thing that's important to know about Elise Stefanik is she is the chief messenger for House Republicans as the conference chairwoman. So we have seen even in the last couple of weeks, you know, them bringing in um, families who have hostages in Hamas mm -hmm. and also talking with the number of the students, kind of bringing them around the hill. But this was really a moment, regardless of, you know, are there these political talking points that Republicans are trying to make in defense of Israel? This was a moment, and she's definitely taking that moment, especially as there are some conversations of, you know, does she want to be potentially considered as Trump's VP? So there, there is some politics, but again, we need to separate that from, of course, what we have seen, which it should have been a an easy answer. Yeah, yeah, and we should say that uh, the former president likes to boast about the fact that he went to an Ivy League college. She says it over and over again. All right, guys, stand by. Coming up, Nikki Haley's steady climb is jolting 2024's undercard race. Is she the only one left with a chance to take Donald Trump down? Stay with us. 38 days, that's how long GOP presidential candidates have to convince Iowa voters that they are deserving of their vote. But can any of the Republican hopefuls topple Donald Trump's sizable lead? Let's talk about that right now with David Kochel, who is a veteran Iowa Republican strategist. He's guided multiple candidates from 
Jeb Bush, and in the Senate race of uh, Joni Ernst. Jason Osborne is also here, who worked on multiple campaigns, from Donald Trump to John McCain. Boy, that's a whole nother conversation. That's a, <laughs> a big difference between those two candidates, Jason. But let's stick with 2024 yes. right now. Uh, I want to start with something from uh, a fundraiser of Ron DeSantis, Roy Bailey, and listen to what he said about Nikki Haley. He said, I admit that she's had a rise, and good for her, but it's not amongst conservatives. And conservatives win primaries in the Republican Party and not Romney moderates. She needed to be outed that maybe she needed to be outed on that, may be able to put some fuel in her tank, but they can't win her votes. Jason, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there is a certain dynamic of truth to that, because if you look at the Iowa results in the past um, and then compare it to this time around where Nikki really kind of has that niche to herself. And then it's a combination of what if DeSantis is pulling any of those votes or is he more pulling the conservative votes? And again, Iowa is so unique. I mean, I think David has much more history in Iowa than than many people I know. And it was seventeen hundred polling sites. And it's so, you know, neighborhood or familial based voting that is the moderate approach going to win the day or is it going to be who's better than Trump and who can win it now? I think DeSantis right now, he has a couple of things going for him in the sense of the organization and organization in an Iowa caucus is can win the day. I mean, yeah. we saw it with Ted Cruz. We saw it in other races in the past, but I don't know what Nikki has on the ground. And David could probably speak to that better than I can. Well, we don't uh, you can speak to what she has on the ground. Let's first look at what she has in the air. And that's a brand new ad. Let's watch that. Make America great again. We're going to build the wall. Build the wall. Project to get Judges are a priority. For, and honestly, honestly made in China, China and Russia. Here. Businesses that have been locked down. What a phony. And David, that was Nikki Haley's super PAC. Is that uh, kind of message going to work in Iowa? Well, it's a little bit of a troll and it might be effective. I think, you know, in particular, they're DeSantis and Trump kind of going after the same voters are both going after evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think they're trying to make the play here that they're going to split some of that vote and she's going to be with more mainstream Republicans. So um, it, it could be effective. But it's also a way to sort of diminish DeSantis in general. Mm -hmm. And I think the way they've gone back and forth at each other, it might be an effective tool at this point. Yeah. OK, so you mentioned Donald Trump. We, of course, have to talk about him because uh, th that's the big question is what is going yeah. to happen in the first contest in Iowa. Uh, I was talking to a strategist who has done work in Iowa like you have, David, who said that we have to keep a focus on turnout because in the Trump orbit, they hope that there's higher turnout because that will mean that there are likely uh, maybe first time caucus goers, people who don't traditionally go out. There are more Trump uh, voters or caucus goers. And in the DeSantis and Haley camps, DeSantis in particular, their hope is that it's a lower turnout because it means they're more traditional conservatives, evangelicals. Is that how you see it? Yeah, that's kind of how I see it, although there's a bit of a dynamic I'd be I'd be concerned about if I was the Trump campaign, which is with the national poll numbers having him at, you know, 55, 60 percent with these huge leads. Uh, some voters who 
don't follow this campaign on a day-to-day basis might think this thing is already over. Right. And so they may be less motivated to go out. The thing about the caucuses that are interesting is you, you can have turnout as low as 90,000 people, which we did, I think, in 1996, and 185,000 people like we did in 2016. The, the, the huge gulf there, the difference there, and who shows up and who doesn't show mm-hmm. up is really what's going to make or break this campaign. But organization will be critical. Yeah. All right. We're going to have and, to leave and, it. And, and Brad, real quick, Jason. That. Yeah, I think if you look at the traditional Trump voter, it's not the high propensity voter. And in Iowa caucuses, those are the highest of the highest propensity voters. Yeah. They're the ones that are willing to go out in the middle of January yeah. and, and go to a small congregation and vote. Guys, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're going to talk again soon for sure. And now you know her as a tennis champion, but Billie Jean King is so much more. In the latest episode of our Being series, I spent time with the legend who... 50 years ago, led the way for equal prize money at the U.S. Open, won that famous Battle of the Sexes tennis match, and changed not just her sport, but the world for women. Last month, she turned 80 and is very candid about that and revealed to me one goal she never achieved yet, running for office. I've heard you say that maybe you should have run for office. After the King Riggs match? I think everybody in the country probably would have known my name. You know, for a lot of politicians, they can't get through the clutter of people even knowing Is it who something they are. that you wanted to do? I think if I did not have sports, would have gone to law school and definitely tried to be president of the United States. Why not? 80 is apparently not something that is disqualifying to be president, so that's no, possible. I, that's another thing. I have experienced ageism now, too. Really? Yeah, and it's not fun. How so? Just people have kind of given up on you. They don't think you're any good. Well, I don't know very many people who have done that. Uh, She is a legend, and you can see much more of this. Billie Jean King, being Billie Jean King, it premieres at 10 p.m. Sunday on CNN, right after CNN Heroes. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.